All right, I think we're recording. Welcome back to Game Cool Books. This will be for episode nine. Uh, I'm joined this time by Gabriel Schenk, who's a preceptor at Signum University. And uh, Gabriel, you're, you're speaking to me from Oxford in the UK. I am, yes, uh, from a cold November night. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, with, and, and for any listeners who can see the, the webcam view, you can also see my, my, my pet, well, my, my companion Pandora, who I sometimes think of as my demon. That is excellent. My demons are around here somewhere. I've got three of them. We'll see if they make an appearance. Um, <laughs> so how did you arrive at Oxford? Uh, can you tell us also, how did you come to Philip Pullman's work and the Golden Compass in particular? Well, I lived um, near Oxford. I've lived near Oxford all my life. Um, I used to live in Cumnor, where Philip Pullman now lives. And now I live um, in a village uh, just a little bit, a few miles away from Cumna, but, but both Cumna and the village I'm currently in, Ensham, are uh, just a few miles out of the city centre. So I'm, I'm really an Oxford man, um, slash country man, I suppose. And uh, I discovered Pullman, I can't remember exactly when it was. I mean, I, my, my, my edition of um, Northern Lights um, is this one. It's, it's not the first edition, unfortunately. It's... Um, I think a 1996 edition, um, by which time Pullman had already won the Carnegie Medal. And I remember, I just, I think my parents bought me this or something because they heard that it was set in Oxford or something. And I remember looking at the cover and thinking um, it didn't look terribly interesting because I'm not that interested in bears. And I thought it was probably a book all about bears, but then I picked it up one day and I read it and I, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, and then by the time the Amber Spyglass came out, I was a proper fan. And I got one of my friends into the series as well. And uh, he scored some tickets to see Philip Pullman live, which oh, was man. like the most exciting thing ever. I was 13 at the time. Uh, and uh, I sort of felt about Pullman like Lyra feels about Mrs. Coulter at the yeah. beginning of um, the novel. Although the, luckily there wasn't a point where I realized that Philip Pullman was pure evil like Lyra does. That's <laughs> we're going to discuss. Um, but yeah, we went to the venue, which was the <clears throat> the Natural History Museum, where Lyra visits in um, The Subtle Knife, um, where she looks at the Trepan skulls, or, or rather she goes into the Pitt Rivers Museum, which is part of the Natural History okay. Museum in Oxford. And uh, it was a lovely, intimate room. It was about 100 people. And we arrived early. We got there really early on and got got to sit next near the front and then philip pullman came in and i th remember thinking oh, I, you know i really want to make a good impression because maybe he'll write about me maybe i'll become a character in his next book maybe he'll make the he'll be inspired by my appearance or something like that and i'll be the new will parry or whatever mm -hmm. um and um and they started talking and he and he said i yes i went to the zoo and i saw a family of gibbons and the mummy gibbon was eating the baby gibbon. And I thought this was a very profound situation. And I just remember thinking like, what the hell is he on about? And th something in that moment made me chortle. And then, I, and then I started to think, I can't laugh. Because if I, get, if I laugh, I'll get kicked out and then I'll never appear as a character in one of his novels. And then I looked up and I was trying my hardest not to laugh. And Philip Pullman was glaring at me and he used to be a teacher. So he's very good at glaring at unruly 13-year-olds like I was. 
Um, and somehow I managed to control myself, which was very, very difficult because my, my friend was sitting next to me. He also got the giggles. We got through the whole talk, thank goodness. And then we queued up to get our book signed. Yeah. And uh, my friend stole the um, promotional material from, the, from the, um, the table. He just took all this uh, cardboard cutout stuff of the amber spyglass and just gave it to Philip Pullman to sign, who just signed it. Oh, so awesome. kind of that Lyra would have done, I think. And then we wrote to the publisher Scholastic and asked for more material. So they sent us like a nice booklet of the alethiometer and things. So we we were really um, Philip Pullman fan boys. Uh, And then I was so excited, you know, to read The Amber Spyglass and loved it. And then, of course, we had to wait approximately 10 million years um, for The Book of Dust. Um, But it was it was well worth the wait, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, And. I, so I read the whole trilogy back when I was 13 or 14. And then I reread them when I was doing my PhD at, um, at Oxford. And I kind of felt because I was, you know, in the equivalent of Jordan College, I suppose, uh, in amongst uh, the setting, I thought I'd give them another read. And I was struck by how formative those books had been for me. Um, I read Harry Potter at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, just before, I read the first Harry Potter book in 1998. Uh, and then I, I read each book as it came out. And for a lot of people of my generation um, and even younger, the Harry Potter series was the formative experience. You know, they read them as teenagers. They grew up with Harry. But for me, it was, it was Lyra. I wanted to be Lyra. I wanted to be Will. Um, I still do. I, reading those books back, I, I realized how much um, they they helped form my ideals and what I wanted to be and, and uh, what I think heroism is, um, which is kind of funny because as a child, my favorite author was C.S. Lewis and still uh-huh. is a, a, an author I adore. Um, but C.S. Lewis was the formative author of my childhood and Philip Pullman was definitely the formative author of my teenagehood. That's very, very interesting. I have a very similar experience where I read the Hobbit as a kid uh, of eight or nine, maybe. I read the Narnia books, you know, shortly thereafter and loved, I loved both of those. And then I, uh, my, my dad gave me a copy of The Golden Compass, which is the US title, and I loved it, you know, um, I loved all of them. And then I, you know, much later, uh, as, I, as I read more of Philip Pullman and his interviews and essays and things, he really disparages Lewis and yeah. Tolkien. Uh, he's really harsh. And I think might have some points, but by the same token, some of those points can be turned right around and leveled at him, as some of his critics have done, uh, at Pullman, that is. Um, and I spoke about this a little bit with uh, uh, Verlin Flieger in a previous podcast, which I haven't released yet. So um, I, I'm interested to see how our conversation develops, because you sound like you're a little more amenable to Pullman, to say the least. Uh, than Dr. Flieger is. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I absolutely adore Pullman. Um, I love okay. everything he's written. Uh, I've read quite a lot of what he's written. Um, and I, th- I, I mean, it, I think actually the best thing uh, he's written is Clockwork, uh, oh, if you've yeah. read that. I have. I've read everything I can get my hands on. Uh, I've never found his early novels, which he also is pretty harsh about when he speaks of them. Um, he has one called Galatea and one called The Haunted Storm. Have you read either of those? I haven't, I haven't read those. I haven't even heard of those, actually. Um, yeah. they're not, is it, I, I, I mean, I, I, another book I quite like by him is um, The Broken Bridge. And that's okay. 1990. 
Um, and and actually, that's the the novels you mentioned aren't mentioned in the um, yeah. the other books by Philip Pullman. So he's sort of uh, hidden those away. That's exactly. quite interesting. He's tried pretty hard to to bury them, and that might be his craftiness. Is what I'm thinking now, is that he's trying to make them sort of forbidden fruit, you know, and making people really really drive the prices up on those books. Possibly, who knows? Well, but, now uh, I want to read them. Me too. Me too. I, I haven't found them. Uh, I've read pretty much everything I can get my hands on. So when the the first book of Dust, uh, La Belle Sauvage, came out, he released also a book of essays. Have you had a yes. look at that? Demon Voices. Okay, good. Demon Voices. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the topics that I wanted to, to talk to you about, uh, we kind of agreed would be a good place to maybe start, would be uh, his, his statements about realism versus mm -hmm. fantasy which come up quite a bit in, in articles and interviews. Um, it's one of the points at which he likes to try to distance himself from Tolkien, especially, um, which he takes to be sort of the, uh, the banner for fantasy literature, uh, as far as most people use that term and think about that kind of uh, writing. And he wants to align himself more with realism. And he cites people like George Eliot as kind of the great, uh, hallmarks of realist writing. Um, yeah. And so uh, there's lots of points that he brings this up. There's lots of essays in which it, it makes an appearance. Um, but maybe just to like start initially here, I guess I'd wonder why his writing does seem so much like fantasy if he so strongly wants it to be realism. I wonder what you think about that. Well, I mean, his argument is that he's using realism to for an end, um, a means to an end, and that end is um, sorry. He's using fantasy as a right. as a means to get to realism, um, uh, and it's sort of fantasy is just the kind of vessel in which his imagination spilled into. I mean, it's just uh, it's just the form it took for that story. It served the story. Um, I, I actually believe that slightly less after reading La Belle Sauvage, which mm -hmm. has a, um, a very extraordinary um, magic realism moment in it. Um, but uh, anyway, we can talk about that another time. Um, but certainly Northern Lights or The Golden Compass. Um, yeah, okay, it's about talking bears and it's about witches and it's about demons, but actually it's about people. Yes. Uh, and, 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 the bears are people and the witches are people and the characters are real, um, whatever reality means. Um, he uses the, the, the word real in, um, in one of his essays in Demon Voices, actually, the, the, the writing fantasy realistically. Uh, okay. which he, gave, he gave at the, uh, the, um, uh, <laughs> the Sea of Faith conference. Right. Um, apparently who a group of people who believe that God is non-real. It sounds fascinating, actually. Um, but he, yeah, he talks about reality. Um, and I was, I was thinking about this when I was rereading um, parts of The Golden Compass last night. And I came across um, a section which I thought was incredibly moving um, about the, uh, the mother of the first boy who gets stolen by the, um, the goblins. Yes. Um, and uh, it's, this, this mother is, a, is an alcoholic Yes. And uh, and she, um, her son gets snatched, and uh, uh, she thinks that maybe he got he got he, he ran away, and and the the scene ends with uh, uh, she cried her. Um, in fact, I'm just going to find it because I, I'm going to get the uh, 
the um the actual oh, yes yeah, so it's a very sentimental scene i remember i, I know what you're talking about yeah yeah um but it, it it struck me as particularly powerful because that's actually what the essence of the, the story is about that's the that's the narrative focus it's not about um the de the demons are actually quite incidental in terms of the narrative focus it, in <laughs> fact it's it's so nonchalant the the opening of the whole novel lyra and her demon moved through the darkling hall right um, so and the, and actually when whenever you ask philip pullman a question about demons on twitter or wherever it is say like uh um you know do demons have sex and are demons born with the uh the person and stuff like that he always uh, replies i have no idea right. uh, because it's not important for him it's not the focus it's not the story uh, where this is very good. yeah would know the answer he would have worked out the entire genealogy of every yeah. character um, the, 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 I found the quotation. Um, oh, it's incredibly powerful. Uh, she knocks, the doors open, they go in, the doors closed. Tony will never come out, at least by that entrance, and he will never see his mother again. She, poor drunken thing, will think he's run away, and when she remembers him, <clears throat> she will think it was her fault and sob her sorry heart out. And yeah. wow, we're, we're, we're in chapter three, and, and Pullman is going there, you know. Mm -hmm. this, uh, incredible stuff for a children's book especially uh and i actually it did make me cry uh, last night um and i'd forgotten actually how powerful that was but it's a great moment that that shows um that that's what pullman's really writing about those kind of moments um of humanity of of grief of uh separation um of um tragedy uh and it's not actually about the talking bears exactly yeah well so that's i think it's a fair distinction to make but i think it depends upon a somewhat superficial reading and i'm imputing this to pullman now that he hasn't read tolkien very charitably i guess if he thinks that that tolkien because tolkien has thought so deeply about his his world and coming up with genealogies and calendars and stuff like that that tolkien has somehow not thoughts so deeply about the loss and the grief and the characters because I mean that's why I loved Tolkien as a kid too it wasn't about you know the fantasy elements as much as it was and still more as I got older as much as it is about the characters and the story and the themes that are in there I think they're incredibly rich you know um, and so it makes me wonder not so much about Pullman's skill as a writer but of his um, what he's doing as a reader there and why he would say something so harsh and i think it might apply more to tolkien's followers uh, than to tolkien himself but even so it's it's kind of a mean thing to say it's maybe a polemical and kind of a another one of his sort of crafty moves to try to get people to talk about him right I'm no sure. he's incredibly crafty i think he said his demon would be a magpie yeah um, Stealing little things from different people—that's what authors yeah. do. Yeah, I mean, he talks in this article uh, about the fat books crowding the fantasy shelves, all with titles like *The Doom Sword Chronicles*, Volume Seventeen, <laughs> or *Runequest*, or *Orc Slayer*. And I do know those books he's talking about, and they are—they um, are pretty grim, I have to say. Some yeah. of them, I mean, some of them are quite good. But yeah, I, I think he's a bit harsh in *Lord of the Rings*. I mean, he says some extraordinary things in this article, um, this this talk, um, uh, entities. Um, 
where he says, yes, um, Lord of the Rings is inventive, but that kind of thing is not hard to make up, actually. Mm. Um, entities of that sort multiply themselves without much effort from the writer because a lot of the details are purely arbitrary. I don't, I don't think they are arbitrary at all, actually. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about this in an essay on stories. Mm. Um, that kind of world building um, might seem arbitrary um, at first glance, but it's not. And actually, there was nothing easy or simple about um, Tolkien's world building and it's and it is meticulous and I think there are some pretty deep ideas in Lord of the Rings but you have to search for them they're not they're not handed to you they're not thrust in your face in quite the same way that they are in, in Pullman and I'm not saying Pullman is not subtle and nuanced because he is right but, but I think it's 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 a case of narrative focus um, and mm-hmm. what the narrator is interested in and Pullman has some very specific ideas about the narrator and he he treats the narrator as a character um some kind of mercurial character who has no gender and and um non is non-biased but it's definitely is a character and and you do get that sense um in the golden compass as well uh with um with some of the comments that the the narrator comes out with um finally there were other kinds of lessons so gently and subtly given that they didn't feel like lessons at all well whose opinion is that that's not He's not inside Lyra's mind at that point. He's kind of, it's the narrator has an opinion on, on some of the events. One, um, one other example of that uh, that appears in chapter three is about, he says the librarian was quite wrong. You know, Lyra would have really liked to learn about dust and she would one day know more about it than anyone in the world, right? So yeah, he makes these little, little injections of his uh, or her, right? The narrator, uh, mm-hmm. the spirit, you know, uh, yeah, sort of and, puts that, that perspective in there for you to to sort of wonder about, but you can easily read right over it the first time. Yeah, exactly, and I and I think Tolkien also has a narrator mm-hmm. character. I mean, it's it, you know, Lord of the Rings is supposed to be, um, isn't it? Well, Sam or something. Oh, I can't remember. I mean, The yeah. Hobbit is Bilbo, obviously, it's but it's supposed to be narrated. effort between the hobbits in some way. Yeah. 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 Uh, and and so I think that the issue is that you know, the narrator has slightly different things they're interested in, and Pullman uh, I I think is a bit harsh when he calls Lord of the Rings trivial. Yes. He, I don't know. He a bit you know we can't all like the same things. And That's I true. love Tolkien and I love C.S. Lewis, but I particularly love Philip Pullman um, mm. because he, he he speaks to me in a way that um, as much as I like Lewis and, and Tolkien, and as much as I think they're worthy of study and reading. Um, they don't quite hit me in quite the same way. Is it um, partly, do, what, what do you think accounts for that? Because I feel much the same. And actually for me, it has it has a little more of it in, in the golden compass and a little less in the subtle knife and a little less in the amber spyglass. It, I, I don't know if it was just something about the golden compass or about me when I read it. What, what do you think that is? Do you feel the same way about well, the three books? Or? I, don't, I don't quite feel the same way about the three books, but I know what you mean, and I have heard other people say something similar. Um, the Golden Compass gets pretty epic. Um, I mean, the tagline for the third book is War in Heaven, it's up to Lyra and Will yeah. now. The, the fate of the world lies, lies in the balance or something like that. The tagline for Northern Lights is something like, you know, Lyra's going on an adventure. So it's much more intimate and it's much more, you know, focused on <clears throat> Lyra's... Um, Lyra growing up, I suppose, and it's um, uh, it, it's a uh, it's um, 
it, it, it's yeah it's an intimate and personal adventure so perhaps that's something to do with it um i like the epic and i like the intimate and i and i i think pullman blends the two together and actually there's quite a lot of intimacy in the amber spyglass as well i mean the the real finale oh, yeah. isn't about you know angels versus demons or angels versus angels or god versus man it's uh it takes place um under a tree and it's uh it's an intimate moment that is so intimate that we're not quite privy to it yeah. uh, so I, I i think it i think pullman pulls it off oh um, I, I i definitely no i still love the books like i especially as a kid loved them no less it's only i think as i've reread them more and started to think more about the the amazing success the amazing thing that the golden compass the northern lights the first book is only mm. in comparison to that do the others and i think it might have something to do with this uh quality of um self-consciousness this is kind of a theory that i'm working on that that pullman becomes more sort of self-conscious of what he's doing as he goes along in the trilogy the original trilogy um and and i don't know how this is going to really develop in the new book of dust that he's starting to release now um, so far, I really love that one too. Uh, I think he's just a master storyteller is what it comes down to. But, but I think he becomes a little more sort of pushy in, the, in, a, in a Lewis-esque kind of way. As he mm. goes on in the story, he really undermines in some respects the, the power of the story to just kind of pull you in. And there are moments in the Amber Spyglass that just you know, shatter you because they're so great. But on the whole, on balance, it's not as perfect a story as the Golden Compass, to me at least. Uh, and I, I don't want to like quibble, you know, too much about this, but I think that that is, that is there. That's something that gets noticed, and I'm, I'm really interested in what you think about uh, that idea that he's getting more self-conscious as he writes, or something like that. Well, I, I mean, he's quite a self-conscious writer, uh, any, anyway. Um, I mean, some of his earlier books as well he he gets a quite preachy um i forget yeah. what the book was but it was it was something a something whole kind of rant about bicycles in one of his books and actually la belle sauvage has quite a lot about woodwork in it and yes surprise surprise philip pullman is a keen um woodworker in his spare time and so he, he it, there's a sense that you know he quite likes um sharing his ideas um and uh, in fact i mean demon voices is full of um speeches that he's given i went to a talk by him at the university church in fact he was asked to give a sermon and he said well yes i don't believe in god but yes i'll give a sermon <laughs> likes to communicate um but uh, but you know no bad thing necessarily I, and it, it's interesting that he mentions george Eliot because there's a fantastic part of um adam bede um where she it, there's, there's a chapter called in which the story pauses and mm. she um she says some amazing things that i think really inspired pullman she says falsehood is so easy truth so difficult um and she says that the the job of the author is to hold up a mirror to life mm. to, uh talk about it and, and represent it as accurately as possible um uh, uh, the pencil is conscious of a delightful facility in drawing a griffin. The longer the claws and the larger the wings, the better. But that marvellous facility, which we mistook for genius, is apt to forsake us when we want to draw a real, unexaggerated lion. And, and for her, the real, unexaggerated lion is 
the, the better thing. And she, ah. she continues, I turn without shrinking from cloud-born angels, from prophets, uh, sibyls, and heroic warriors to an old woman bending over her flower pot or eating her solitary dinner while the noonday light, softened perhaps by a screen of leaves, falls on her mob cap. And, and that, it, that, 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 that speaks um, quite strongly to the, uh, the scene I was talking about earlier, where it comes down to this mother who's uh, very unwell and she's crying her eyes out because she yeah. thought that she drove her son away. Um, it's, it's not about the dragons. It's not about the angels and the witches. It's about that. Yeah. And, and that, he's very self-conscious doing it. That drives the story from the beginning. Like, yeah, the, the loss of innocence and what, what we do about that. Right. So that's, that's not for Pullman necessarily a bad thing. There's, mm-hmm. there's bad instantiations and manifestations of that like the gobblers, right, are a pretty bad one. Um, and there's all sorts of ways that it can go terribly wrong. Uh, people suffer a lot in the books um, for reasons that they could have prevented, perhaps, if they'd known more. Uh, but on the whole, it seems to be very important that every person goes through that for themselves, right? That's like an experiential kind of um, learning that takes place as you as you grow up, as you... Uh, pursue your personal, right, like represented by your demon, the, the things you're personally interested in and that grab your attention. Um, and and I think that with the example there, uh, the the way that the um, the mother has been, has lost her child, I think she's a really interesting parallel for Mrs. Coulter herself, actually. Um, I wonder what you think about the character of Mrs. Coulter as she's introduced here early in the story um, and what what her relationship with Lyra seems to be like. Um, she's one yeah. of the most interesting characters to me. Well, I mean, it's a completely, you read it in a completely different way um, if you reread it. I Actually, one of the things I like about Pullman is that he really um, deserves to be reread. Oh, yeah. And actually, um, rereading um, this part of The Golden Compass um, in fact, this chapter, the cocktail party, um, you get a reference to the old nunnery at Godstow. You do, um, yeah. Which is which is quite extraordinary because it means that the the, the nunnery where Lyra was uh, as a baby in La Belle Sauvage is uh, is no longer there. Um, it, perhaps it got washed away. Uh, I was there instantly uh, last weekend. Um, I went to the Trout Inn, which is a real place. It's where it's Malcolm a real place. Works. Oh my gosh. Oh, it, it, it's a real place. And I'm sure that um, Philip Pullman got some special deal. Lunches <laughs> for life. Because um, he makes such a big deal of it in La Belle Sauvage and goes mm-hmm. on about how wonderful the food is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's a lovely inn by the river. And then you cross a, a bridge and you get to the Godstow convent, the nunnery, yeah. which in our universe is a ruin. Um, oh, it's quite wow. a beautiful old ruin. But in Lyra's universe, um, was still a nunnery at least until she was a baby, and and seems to be abandoned by the time of the Golden Compass. Oh, um, so that's great. It's a great thing to to sort of reread and notice. And then, of course, Mrs. Coulter's character changes quite dramatically. Yes. Um, not just because you know she's um, a bit evil, although she is. You know, she there are sides to her character. Uh, I think there's a bit in George Eliot as well, where, where she talks about um, holding something up to the light. This is what a, a novelist does. They take a character and they hold, it's like holding up a crystal to the light and, and, uh, and turning it and seeing different, um, mm. different flashes and different sides of it and, and so on. And that's something that, um, that Pullman does much more than 
say Lewis and, and Tolkien. Yeah. Um, and he certainly does that with Mrs. Coulter. Um, but particularly when thinking about this, this chapter, the cocktail party, you, you know, knowing, and it, by the way, final warning, if you haven't read these books, you might want to skip yeah. ahead the podcast this bit, because um, <laughs> it is a plot point that Mrs. Coulter is uh, Lyra's mother. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, uh, and and there's a lot of kind of references to this. A lot of people think assume that this mm-hmm. is her mother, and she does a kind of like motherly thing to an extent as well. She's like teaching her how to do stuff, um, and there's a kind of you know goes back to that consciousness you were talking about. There's like there's quite a conscious um, writing against C.S. Lewis here. Oh. Um, so how to, uh, you know, Mrs. Coulter is teaching her lessons, how to wash up one's own hair, how to judge which color suited one, how to say no in such a charming way that no offense was given, how to put on lipstick, powder, scent. Um, and famously, Susan isn't in heaven <laughs> by the end of the Narnia series. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. She's not in heaven and she's more interested in lipsticks and nylon. And it seemed, I think Lewis is actually really using that as a kind of, to talk about materialism rather than femininity, but it is probably problematic that the one kind of time that you're talking about lipstick and nylon and so on is when a character is, seems immoral. It's it's as if it's saying, Lewis is saying, well, being feminine is bad or growing up is bad or something like that. And and, and Pullman's going nonsense. It's like, it, it, Lyra's allowed to grow up. Exactly. Does not need to do this terrible thing this terrible loss of innocence. It's okay if you want to um, look pretty. It's okay if you want to run around and get your knees dirty, you know, it, stop kind of shaming people. Um, yeah. And then that's, you know, that's like a, a lovely little moment um, when he's uh, taking um, Lewis to task. Yeah, people talk about that as the problem of Susan. It's, it's like right. a thing, right, in Lewis studies. And I think Pullman really, really... Uh, dramatically, yeah, reverses it here, um, and it, it must be conscious. And and I think uh, to to just like turn it around the, a little bit though, um, when when Lyra is uh, with Mrs. Coulter, she is a little bit guilty about her um, luxurious life, and she's especially guilty. She feels especially guilty that is about not. Um, remembering Roger enough, right? Yeah, Her friend yeah. who's just been lost to the gobblers. And that all comes to a head in the cocktail party um, chapter where she realizes overhearing <laughs> some things that are said and, and sort of skillfully um, speaking with Lord Boreal, she sort of learns that Mrs. Coulter is behind Roger's disappearance. So, mm-hmm. so she's, you know, innocently been led down this path where she could have been collaborating with the gobblers if she uh, wasn't as if she wasn't Lyra, right? If she didn't figure out what was going on in time, um, but she's not, you know, she's not without a certain amount of guilt as well. It's just it's couched very, very differently from you know wearing lipstick and and caring about yeah, nylon. Guilt. Exactly. If you if you if you're gonna feel guilt, feel guilty about abandoning your friends, not about yes. putting on a dress or whatever. Um, that those are, again, those are the things that matter, um, and I I agree with that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it, this is this is an important chapter. It's it's there's a lot of exposition as well, which Pullman gives through dialogue, and he also get he he does the kind of um, oh what's that 
famous example of um, people sitting around in a dinner table and it's very boring, but if you put a, a ticking bomb underneath, then it becomes very exciting. I forget what that's called. It's a, it's a narrative um, uh, tool. But he, do, he does sort of the equivalent of that twice, actually, so far in the, in the novel, once when you have um, Lyra hiding in the wardrobe. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's a reference to C.S. Lewis or not, but, but, but she's, she's hiding in the wardrobe and listening to Lord Asriel. And then um, here she's overhearing people at the party. Um, and because, because she, she might be discovered um, in the wardrobe at any moment, then that's a bit more exciting. And, and in the party, she's already taken against uh, Mrs. Coulter and she's realized that she smells metallic as if she's a robot or something. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Coulter has had a go at her and she's got that first moment of like, mm, maybe she's not as perfect anymore. Um, and, and, and maybe I'll get in trouble again. Um, maybe I'm going to be a bit rebellious. Mm. Um, so we, we have that kind of edge to the, all this exposition and she's, she's overhearing this stuff. Um, and, and all this important information is being conveyed with, without without it feeling like an information dump um yeah. like it does kind of in um, the council of elrond for example just for example just, yeah just, just to to talking again um but the other really interesting thing in this in this chapter as well is that i think this is the real end of the first act um mm. and i think we've had a false end of the first act um and and pullman is quite keen on structure particularly something like La Belle Sauvage, where you can sort of, you can really see the acts working. Um, but if you think about the first act ending when the, the main character makes a, a, an important decision um, and goes through a doorway that they can't get back from, well, this is that moment. You think it's that moment when she decides to go with Mrs. Coulter, but actually that's not really a decision in her hands. <laughs> the master asks her and she agrees. And then the master says, um, he couldn't have avoided it anyway. Um, yeah. So there's a sense of inevitability there. But the, 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 the time that she decides to leave Mrs. Coulter and go on the run, well, that's entirely Lyra. And in, in, there's a sense of inevitability about it because she, she, surely she couldn't stay knowing that Mrs. Coulter was part of this. But actually, it's a really impractical thing to decide. It's really difficult. It yeah. means that her life is going to be so much more difficult. Um, so from a narrative point of view, this is, this is the point where um, Lyra has demonstrated agency and is changing the plot and uh, has made an important moral decision. It's not just a kind of decision to go along with something. Um, and again, I mean, if we want to compare it to, to Lord of the Rings, Frodo leaving the Shire feels like that moment. But actually, he's, he's really asked, he's pushed along. Yes. Uh, to leave the Shire and the Black Riders are coming so he kind of has to and he's a bit slow about it anyway and he decides to go to Rivendell but the real act, end of Act 1 in the Fellowship of the Ring is when Frodo says I will take the ring and he makes That's that right. decision he doesn't need to do that he could have stayed in Rivendell um, in a way that he couldn't really have stayed in the Shire but he decides to do that and Lyra decides to to run away from Mr. Coulter in a way that in a, in a, in a decision that is different from uh, deciding to go along with Mrs. Coulter away from Jordan College. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel the um, the alethiometer plays into that too? Because it's also in this chapter that they're pretty sure that the golden monkey has found the alethiometer and the secret is is out, right? Um, so that's part of it too, maybe. 
Yeah, the alethiometer is funny because she's she's given it with really no explanation at all. And again, talking about the rereading aspect of this, you know, knowing that the alethiometer is so precious, and also a bit of the history of it from La Belle Sauvage, right. it's incredible <laughs> that the master just thrusts it in her hands. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it reminded of there's an episode of Seinfeld when George Costanza is offered a job and um, his boss says, uh, um, "You are aware," and then he just stops talking and gets distracted by something else. It's like that. With the boss. It's like I'm giving you this this thing. Um, you are aware. Oh, oh, yes. You better go. There's someone at the door. I mean, this is like so much more important than this incredibly important thing I'm giving you and telling you about. You would have thought, like, at least give her the instruction manual, you know, just like yeah. or something, just write it down. Like, what is this? Um, but she she has this uh, this intimate connection uh, with this with this alethiometer. It's actually quite nice on the cover. And if you can see that, you know, she's really <laughs> loving the alethiometer there. Oh, yeah. um, and, uh, and she's had a bit of time with it in bed, um, just looking at it. <laughs> and it, it, it clearly it's it's had some. It's called out to her. Uh, or the dust has called out to her or something um, in a way that we don't really understand well ever, but we understand a bit of it in the sudden life and the amber spyglass when she, she talks to um, various experts. Right. Yeah. The, the way that it starts out is just as this thing that she has to keep secret, right? That's like the, the clearest thing about the master's injunction to her on giving it to her. There's also this, this tidbit that it's related somehow to Lord Asriel, right? Yeah. The second half of that statement, because that's when he gets interrupted and says, goodbye, you know, uh, you better go. But, um, but the secrecy of it, that, in that respect, it's very similar to the ring, actually. Uh, mm. it, um, it's something that must be concealed. Uh, it's very powerful, but we don't fully understand it. Uh, and and it's golden, you know, it's round and golden. Um, yeah, so that's true. Well, and in and in fact, actually, New Line um, in the first trailer for the Golden Compass film started off with a, a, a an image of the One Ring that then span in space and turned into the alethiometers. They they make it <laughs> as obvious as you can get. And actually, the, their filming of the scene um, was pretty painfully obvious as well. They didn't. They got rid of the uh, uh, exposition through dialogue because who who needs that? Um, in a in a visual medium like film, um, and they just had Lyra finding and looking through some documents and reading. This is the most appalling thing I've ever seen in my life. And then yeah. she and she literally says, "Oh, they're the goblets. Oh no. Oh, that means oh, Mrs. Colt is evil. Oh, I must leave." And and it's like, how could you have made it worse than than the, the than the book when surely the book i mean the book does it in a kind of cinematic way why oh, would really? you make yes. it cinematic in the cinematic version anyway that's sorry that's another topic um but yeah to go back to the alethiometer it is really interesting because she at this point lyra is enamored with mrs coulter mm -hmm. loves mrs coulter lord asriel is basically like scary and doesn't seem very nice the mm -hmm. master tried to kill him so she's not quite sure about the master either and yet she trusts the master and, and she sort of is protecting Lord Asriel yeah. um, against Mrs. Coulter, who's the nice one. So even though on one level it's very simple, Asriel's scary, the master's uh, would-be murderer, Mrs. Coulter's lovely, there's another layer of complexity here, which is that 
she has some affection for both the master and, and um, Azriel, despite their faults. And although Mrs. Coulter's lovely, she doesn't quite trust her yet. And right. so that, you know, that idea of like complexities underneath simplicity is very appropriate for the alethiometer because that's exactly what that's about. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of a, it's a series of images, which each of which is a symbol that has multiple layers of meaning, right? Um, yeah. She, she learns herself how to read it. Um, to me, the, the alethiometer is a kind of um, metaphor, I guess, or not 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 sure what to call it but it's sort of like learning how to interpret uh experience as well right it's like you can interpret things on a surface level you can mm -hmm. interpret them with respect to certain books of learning right and say this symbol means this or this or that right or you can sort of like lyra have questions which you explore and which are answered imagistically and i think that's kind of what a storyteller does as well and I think it's really fascinating how um, everything in this book begins as a very mysterious, alluring thing, and then is like filled in with shades of of moral and uh, intellectual depth as we go along in the story. But we never lose sight. It's just the most amazing book because we never lose sight of of Lyra and Pantalaimon as this, the heart of this story, right? And they they just. Um, pull you through all of this intellectual, moral, theological stuff, uh, which sort of like rains down, but, but you never lose sight of, of them. And, and then when Will comes in, of him too. And it's, I think it's just the greatest. I mean, deep down, I think I like it more than, than Tolkien and Lewis. And, and I really want to understand why. <laughs> it's, it's very yeah, hard. I, I don't know if I could answer why. I mean, I think, I think they, they, their virtues are are different uh, and they work that the reason they're good at, you know there are different reasons why they're good but i uh, but yeah i i agree with you about that kind of link between storytelling and the alethiometer and in fact indeed reading and the alethiometer as well yeah. Rem reminds me of um of paradise lost actually and and so philip pullman wrote a preface to paradise lost yeah. and c.s lewis wrote a preface to paradise lost and they're quite interesting to compare oh wow uh, because i mean um uh, Philip Pullman's preface is about sort of five pages long or something like that. And he says, one of the things he says is, uh, you've got to read this aloud. You've got to experience this. Um, just listen to the language of it. Um, enjoy it. Well, C.S. Lewis's preface is, is a book in itself. And it's about, I don't know, 50, 100 pages, something like that. Oh, and, uh, I was having a look at it uh, earlier today, just to remind myself, because I, I, I was just thinking about it. And um, C.S. Lewis spends time... Um, wondering uh, whether the angels in paradise lost are gay um and he's oh, wow. he really he, i mean he you know it was his job he was an academic but he goes through in um extreme detail and uh and picks out parts of paradise lost does it brilliantly instantly and it's it's good in a different way yeah uh, and, and it is a great work of scholarship it does remind me of the two ways of reading the alethiometer because you can do it the Lyra way where you just sort of empty your mind and experience it. Or you can do it the way that the scholars do it, which is with the massive manual and the tome and you learn to read. And actually this is how Lyra has to learn. Exactly. The by the end of the series. Um, and you know, you, you get the same answers. One is much faster than the other, but I think they're both good in different ways. 
um, it's going to be interesting to see if that comes back in the second book of dust uh, oh, yeah. book, which, which will have, I think Lyra as an undergraduate. Um, it should be quite cool to see and oh, whether yeah. we'll see her reading the alethiometer in the, in the very different way, in the kind of, if you like the CS Lewis approach to paradise lost way, rather <laughs> than the Philip Pullman approach um, that she got to uh, use earlier. Yeah, that's, it, it's, it becomes in that way a kind of uh, symbol for, for that transition, right, from Lyra as, as a child to Lyra as uh, adolescent, um, it, in, in the same way that the demon being able to change and then the demon yeah. being settled uh, mirrors that, that process. And I think, yeah, it's such an interesting book to read as a kid and then to read as a grown-up. And I think that might also account for part of Pullman's harshness I don't, I don't know for sure, but I think he says somewhere that he didn't read the Narnia books until he was older. Or oh, that uh, would be interesting if that yeah. were true. Yeah, yeah. And and I uh, think that's you know it's fair to like read critically versus reading um, charitably is a word that I want to use. Like being like taken in by the story versus standing back from the story and sort of you know picking it apart, analyzing it. They are very yeah. different. And they both have. Yeah. And you get that contrast between the, the scholars of Jordan College and uh, Mrs. Coulter. So mm. uh, they're both teaching her things. Um, and, you, and this is discussed in that chapter, The Cocktail Party, where uh, you know, Lyra knows things about atoms, but she doesn't, she doesn't know. There's a wonderful meta joke, actually. She doesn't know about the solar system. Yeah. And when Mrs. Coulter explains that the five planets revolve around the sun, Lyra laughs. And of course, we're laughing as well because we know it's more than five planets. Right. Um, Lyra's laughing because she's amazed that planets revolve around the sun. But actually, there's, there's a kind of wisdom in that because she's laughing from out of ignorance. But, but actually, she has the last laugh, if you, if you like, from the reader's perspective in that Mrs. Coulter's ignorant in a different way. She yeah. thinks she knows, but actually she doesn't because there's more than five planets unless that the other universe is so different. Um, and so that kind of, yeah, the, the kind of the knowledge of um, the scholars where they think they know everything in, in, in Jordan College, um, but actually miss out some very basic stuff. And then Mrs. Coulter teaches her, you know, how to put on makeup and, and sort of social, graces and things like that which yes. is kind of more practical knowledge um uh, is it's kind of like um experience versus um i don't know in, intellectual um spiraling or something like that but that that joke about the um the planets is quite a good example of of how mrs coulter kind of gets gets those things mixed up as well and that 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 actually sometimes the more you know the less you know yeah. And I worry about this a lot as, as someone trying to talk about the book. I don't want to put it because hey, yeah. I'm, I'm we not, could be doing the same thing. Couldn't exactly. We? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't want to do that. But, um, and I think Pullman, he walks that line very carefully when he speaks about his own writing as well. He always says, you know, well, it's the reader and the book between them. The meaning comes out. It's not for me to say authoritatively what the book is about or what dust is or anything. And, and there's a lot of truth to that, but I think part of that, like the deeper truth you're pointing to is like, we deeply do not know what reality is, right? Mm -hmm. We approach it in, in various ways and we put different, you know, isms on those approaches. We can call it fantasy, we can call it realism, 
but there's something deeply mysterious there. And that's what sort of pulls us into the story, right? Dust yeah. is a great, another great metaphor for that. It's like, it's that thing which draws your attention, which seems enticing and dangerous. And there's that smell of glamour about Mrs. Coulter too, right? Grown upness, right? Innocence is sort of, is led into experience by this kind of temptation. Like that's the, that's the fall, right? And, and how you then go back and interpret that um, is open, right? There's, there's a canonical interpretation of that. And then there's one that's Gnostic and Pullman sort of plays with both of them and weaves them together into this story, which is like its own thing entirely. And, and I think begets further interpretations. And mm-hmm. I just, um, I just really like, yeah, how, how Lyra um, from the very start is entranced by, by dust, right? Knowing nothing else about it, except that it's, it's very, you know, it's sort of beautiful. Um, it's mysterious. It has a capital letter. Like mm. what's that about? You know? Uh, and I think that that is, I hope that that is that sort of wonder is impervious ultimately to any attempts to explain, you know, that, that yeah. that's sort of like always is going to be there. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. And it's, it's irony of ironies. It's a very C.S. Lewis idea. He talks about <laughs> ex- almost exactly the same thing in uh, surprised by joy. Except he talks about northernness with the capital N and, yeah. and Balder the beautiful is dead is dead. Not knowing what that meant, not needing to know, but just sums up kind of, ideas of the north and the north is a is a huge draw for lewis and of course a huge draw for philip pullman as well and 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 part of the the charm and draw of this novel is the lure of the north um and i I mean i want to go to svalbard yeah Uh, i want to i want to to see the the icy tundra and the uh and and so on and just because there's something it's like you said you can't fully explain it it's it's more than the some of its parts and i think it's something that c.s lewis strongly felt not just with the north but with with lots of things mm-hmm. uh, and i think philip pullman strongly feels it as well I, I think they're two sides of the same coin actually but i but talking just to go back to that idea of mystery i'm not sure there's there is that much mystery in lord of the rings there's a kind of mm. you know it, things are quite expensive explained there's a few there's a few um edges of the map and actually talking to talk about this that you should have um the kind of the glint of uh towers and poking through the mist that kind of mysteriousness um of things that you you won't get to understand but there's a there's still a feeling that you could understand that if you if you only you had enough volumes of Christopher Tolkien's complete works or whatever. <laughs> or that something will come out that will explain it. That there is an answer there. It's just that you need to go over there. You need to research that. Whereas I think what Philip Pullman is talking about, and actually C.S. Lewis as well, is that kind of, it's, it's difficult to explain. It's almost religious. It's almost spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, you know, why is something beautiful? Why is something sublime? It's just something that makes you, f- you, you know, that the pull of the north, or the, of the, the wonder of the northern lights, um, uh, tugs at your soul in some way um so i I, th- I think that maybe that's one of the reasons why i love this novel um but i couldn't explain why and perhaps it would be a mistake to try and um yeah. uh, dissect that too much as as yeah. the uh, as the gobblers do um, exactly. so, yeah, the link between the the demons and the children yeah so i wanted to talk before we wrap up about video games a little bit since you said you're you're interested yeah. in video I love video games. Yeah, uh, I play a lot of video games. 
it, part of my approach in this project is thinking about how could right obviously the film was kind of a flop um but how could this game how could this book look as a as a video game right mm -hmm. the, like imagining an adaptation to um to that medium and uh i wonder if you've had thoughts about that like if you um have games that you've played that you think this is a this is a way in which that story could be adapted successfully um it could look something like this or that uh yeah, have you thought about well, that? I, oh, yes, I've got thoughts. I mean, there was apparently there was a Golden Compass video game based on the film that I haven't right. played. Wikipedia it had um, pretty poor reviews, and it yeah. looks pretty awful. Um, well, I'm I'm going to shock you slightly in that I I, I, I I'm going to I'm still thinking about this, but I I would say that I don't want any video game um, to do with his dark materials, and I love video games, and I think that as as an narrative form they can be incredibly fine and there are some video games um such as jordan meshner's the last express which which reached the same level as the best novels um and that's that's high praise but i i don't really want uh his dark materials video game because uh i think that the novels work so well and the the appealing things about the novels can only really be captured in novels possibly um, TV and film. So we'll see how the BBC do with their new right. series. Um, and Pullman talked about this actually. He, he, talk, he, he talked about the narrative again. Um, you can't really capture the narrator in a film unless you're very, you know, you can do maybe the best director can do subtle things in the background and so on. And actually, th th there are moments in the, in the Golden Compass film where they do something like that. When Lyra is walking over the tables uh, at the beginning of the film and um, dust is caught in sunbeams. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, you know, it's, it's a little bit of nuance, a little bit of foreshadowing perhaps, and that kind of thing, um, which novels do so effortlessly, um, films can do. I'm not sure video games can do quite that same thing. And I think, I don't think they can capture quite the, the quality of um, Pullman's work. But I was thinking of one video game um, when thinking about Pullman's comments on the narrator and the narrator as a character. Okay. And that video game is Half-Life 2, um, which is extraordinary narrative because there's a huge amount of exposition. There's a huge amount of um, data to give to the player about this world and about what's happening. Um, and the main character is mute. He never says anything. Mm. And you never get that in a novel um, because even if the character didn't speak, you would hear the character's thoughts and you don't get that in Half-Life 2. You might get it in a film, but, well, you, I mean, there, I was thinking of Duncan Jones's film Mute, um, in which the main character is mute, but he still writes things down um, and, and you, you see the expressions on his face. You don't get anything like that in Half-Life 2 because it's first-person perspective. You get absolutely nothing from that character you play, Gordon Freeman. And actually what you get instead is that the, the character you play is really the narrator and the main character in that story is really Alex Vance. Um, and I think that's quite interesting. And that's something that video games can do that um, books and television and film can't do. And so when thinking about video games as narratives, I think let video games be video games get them to do the things they can't, they can do particularly well that novels can't do. Let yeah. novels do the things they can do particularly well that video games can't do. And I think Pullman is in the right medium. He's a, he's a novelist, yeah. but he's a playwright as well. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure I, 
that his work would would, would be adapted to uh, the medium of video games. I, yeah, I see a lot of the the difference between narrative uh, narrator voice um, and it's the way that the reader interacts with that and how that that sort of conveys the story and tells you the story versus the way that you as the player of the video game you controlling the character you sort of guide them through a world right mm -hmm. um, and so I see how I see how those are very different um, but I think I'm interested in the possibilities of sort of exploring a world in a way that's like opened up by the story that the narrator tells which in itself is there right it's not like you're again it's not like you're undoing that world by by taking things from it and creating another story and essentially every time you play the game you'd be making up another story right um within the sort of the rules and the um <coughs> rules yeah that are like there for you um, right, I, I, and that can happen. I think the Last Express, which I mentioned before, which is set on the Orient Express on the eve of World War One, is like that. It's okay. slightly different every time you play it, and I find different things every time I play it. Pandora's joining in. I don't know if you can hear. She's got lots of opinions about video games, um, but I, I don't know. I mean, the other thing that that I was thinking of when you were talking about open world, well, Red Dead, Red, what's it called? Red Dead Redemption. Is that what it's uh -huh. called? Red Dead Redemption. I think so. Something like that. It sounds. It sounded ridiculous when I said it aloud. I've, I'm so used to reading it. <laughs> I haven't played it yet. Um, and uh, but anyway, that looks interesting. And the new Spider-Man game as well looks quite interesting, as just as as storytelling in an open world setting. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've had that with the Elder Scrolls games as well. But but actually, the storytelling feels a bit um, disconnected. Um, well, whereas it looks like Red Dead Redemption and the Spider-Man game are building up a, an overstory through an open world. And again, that's something that novels and film can't do. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out as a, as a new narrative tool, a new way of telling stories. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I, I'm, I'm not sure that this video game will ever actually happen. And so it's, it's very much just kind of like a thought experiment and yeah. a way to kind of explore the story in a new way. Um, but if, um, if it does someday happen, I, I hope really strongly that it, like, um, like Pullman sort of leads you into other great writers, you know, I hope that the video game would be kind of a gateway back to the story itself, like the one that Pullman tells. Um, yeah. That, that's sort of my, my overarching goal really um, is to like entice, you know, people to read these stories again, um, whether it be The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, uh, Pullman, you know, Pullman's books, Lewis's books. Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I agree with what you're saying. It makes me a bit uncomfortable though, because I feel like you shouldn't need to be enticed by uh -huh. anything other than the joy of reading. But people do need to be enticed, let's be honest. So, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there, there, there's a whole other debate there, which is, which is about kind of art versus public pleasing and, and so on. And I don't know. That, that's a whole other debate. But um, yeah. I, I'm slightly concerned sometimes about how the novel might be, um, might be made secondary, particularly to film, and how, like, the purpose of writing a novel is really to get a film deal and sort of the novel is a stepping stone to the Hollywood deal. And I hope, hope that doesn't happen with 
video games that kind of like you write a novel in order to get a video game or something like that. <laughs> but I think we're probably a way off that with video games. I think it's, it's happening to an extent with films, uh, unless the novel is very strong, um, which it certainly is in the case of Pullman. So, so do you write, do you um, create video games? What, what kinds of things do you do creatively? Uh, I do, you know, I, I, I did make video games back when I was about the same age as, as when I was, when I was reading Pullman for the first time, actually, when I was about 13, just for fun. Um, these days I write fiction. Um, yeah, I'm writing a novel. Um, so I don't know. I'd love to, I'd love to make video games as well, but it's just become so complicated. Um, I, I mean, you know, video games, it's like sending people to the moon or something. You've got to have like <laughs> 500 people just to, just to do anything. Um, but uh, yeah, and also it's a very volatile and um, ruthless industry as well. So I, I have a lot of respect for people who make video games, but I'm, I'm not sure it's quite for me. I'm going to stick to writing novels, I think. Well, well, best of luck with that. And, and thanks again, Gabriel, for um, taking the time to talk about Pullman and uh, geek out with me a little bit. And oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's great to meet a, a, a like-minded person and, uh, and to talk about some of these issues that are, I think are really fascinating. And I, I can't wait to, to hear how this podcast develops as well. I'll certainly keep track of it and, and keep track of your video games ideas as well. Fantastic. Thanks again. I uh, will let you go. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. And Pandora's going to say goodbye. Pandora is in a great mood, as you can see. She's, she's <laughs> loving this. Oh, poor Pandora. I'm sorry. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night.